Okay, let's go to uh, God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly pray that uh, your word through Amos to your people in Israel all those years ago will come to life as we read it today, many thousands of years later, because you are the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. And truly, your relationship with your people remains the same. And teach us how we must live before you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, I was in the market with my family, and we were eating lunch. And one of my sons, or one of the two, who will be unnamed, uh, said that he forgot his wallet. So he wanted me to give him some money to buy some food. So I opened my wallet and gave him my $10, and I said, okay, you know, go get some food. And I said, I'll, I'll, I'll chop the table. So I was waiting there. And then, about five minutes later, he comes back to me and he says, I can't find the money you gave me. It was right there in my hands, one minute. And I was queuing up and I went to the head of the queue and the money was gone. And uh, I was like, how is this possible, right? And I said, did you put it in your pocket? No. I had it in my hand all this time. But then it's gone now. I don't know what happened to it. Now, I suppose uh, it would uh, seem quite amusing, uh, and uh, it's only $10, but imagine if that was where it was something irreplaceable or invaluable, uh, something like our salvation, something like our relationship with God, something like eternal life in heaven. Uh, because I suppose that sometimes people are like that, they, they feel that they have their relationship with Jesus in their hands, everything's under control, but actually they can lose it very quickly. And I think that that's what the situation is as we look at Amos chapter 2. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Amos, and if you see here on the map, uh, you see that last week in chapter 1, uh, we read how God had judged the nations around Israel. Okay, so there were the nations such as Tyre, Damascus, Syria, uh, the Ammonites, uh, the Moabites, the Edomites, uh, Gaza, and even her sister, uh, people in God, Judah. And I guess uh, as Amos would have brought this prophecy against all these surrounding nations, the people in Israel would have been very happy. They would have been crying with, with shouts of joy. They would have been uh, approving and clapping and endorsing, a bit like if uh, the, you know, uh, the Argentinians would have been very happy when the Brazilians lost against Germany, 7-1. And I think that uh, it would have been a very great surprise for them then to come to chapter 2. Because as they come to chapter 2, they actually see that God now turns his attention not on the nations and the enemies surrounding God's people in Israel, but they, God looks and turns and faces them and he gives them the same judgment as the nations around them. So in verse uh, 6, it says, as Pokim rightly says, this is what the Lord says, but it says, thus says the Lord. It's a pronouncement of judgment, not a pa uh, passing on as information as we saw last week. And he says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. And basically what God is saying here, as he said to the previous nations in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, is that his judgment is coming on God's people in Israel, just as he pronounced judgment on the other nations. And he says there, for three sins, and even for four, I will not relent. And he's saying that his patience has come to an end for Israel, just as it's come to an end for the nations around her, and as well for Judah. And I think that this would have been a great shock, a great surprise, a great astonishment for God's people, because 
they would have felt in Israel that God was blessing them, God was with them, God was giving them favour. Because as we've been seeing, during this time Israel had been very wealthy, very rich, very prosperous and at peace and they would have felt that God had been blessing her but actually God was just as unhappy with her as he was the other nations. And in verse 6 onwards, the second half of verse 6, we see the sins by which God was unhappy with Israel. It says there, it says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Now, as we saw last week, uh, God judges the nations based on their conscience, their general revelation of what they know is right and wrong. But God judged his people based on what he specifically told them to do. They had the law, they had the scriptures, they had the information, the prophecy, which told them how they were to live their lives in the promised land. And the law, if you remember, could be summed up by loving God and loving his people. That's what the Ten Commandments were about. That's what the rest of the law was about. Loving God and loving of the neighbour. In Matthew chapter 22, which is up here, uh, the Pharisees asked, or the expert in the law, asked Jesus, they tested him and they said, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now the problem here, as we look at Israel, was that they were not loving their neighbour and because they were not loving their neighbour, they were not loving God. And in fact, as you look here, they were abusing and oppressing and mistreating their neighbour and all for the sake of money. They were selling the innocent or the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. See, in the ancient world, if you had a debt, if I owed you money and I could not pay the debt, uh, they didn't, it wasn't like today where they have bankruptcy laws. Actually, the bankruptcy laws are meant to protect not so much the creditor but to protect the person going bankrupt. So in those days, they were not so humane. If I owed you money, basically if I couldn't pay my debt, what I had to do was I had to put myself into slavery, what they call debt slavery, and as a result, uh, through my working out my slavery, pay off my debt to you. And in the ancient world, apparently, if, if I couldn't pay off my debt, my children, when I died, would then go into slavery and they would have to work until the debt was paid. Now, this was not meant to be uh, the situation among God's people. God's people were not meant to treat each other in this way, to oppress each other and to exploit one another. God had said that you could only be a slave for six years and after that you would go free. Right? And God said that if you sold your property because you went to debt, after 49 years, 7 times 7, you would get your property back. Right? It would not, you would always have the property in your lifetime. In fact, in Exodus chapter 22, he tells people, he told the people, how they were to be compassionate to one another. He said, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. 
See, God wanted His nature to be the nature of His people. They were meant to be compassionate, loving and caring to one another. But instead, they were harsh and they were abusive to one another. They mistreated the poor. So what they did was, for a pair of sandals, which is hardly anything, right? I mean, we're not talking here about uh, Prada sandals, we're talking about like Giordano sandals, right? For the, for the price of a cheap pair of sandals, because the poor couldn't pay, they would make them slaves. They would, they would oppress them and mistreat them. So think of it this way. Imagine if uh, all of you have mobile phones. I don't know anybody here who doesn't have a mobile phone. Imagine, you know, your monthly mobile phone bill. It's not very much unless you've gone overseas and you've auto-roamed for some reason. Right, and imagine you have one month late on your mobile phone bill. And then Singtel or M1 or Starhub decide because you haven't paid on time, you would be their slave for the rest of the year. Okay, now there's something inherently unjust and oppressive about that, isn't it? But that's exactly what was happening here. People were being made slaves for very small, insignificant amounts of money. And if you look here, let's study the passage carefully because it's God's word. It says here they sell the innocent or the righteous for silver. Now, it wasn't uh, people who were being made slaves who were like drunkards, you know. They were, they, they were just always wasting their money and they couldn't pay their bills. Or these were not gamblers who had gambled all their money away on Germany and the World Cup. Right? These were people who were innocent and who were righteous people. They were people who were just normal people who were tricked or exploited into slavery because they owed a little bit of money. Well, that was one of the sins of God's people in Israel. But in verse 7, it goes on. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Now, this uh, section is linked to the first section. And when it says that they trample on the, on the heads of the poor, it, it literally has the idea of actual physical abuse. Not that they step on people's heads, right? But they physically abuse or harm people. And they do so, so that they will not receive justice. So the picture here is almost like, you know, in parts of the world, and I presume in Singapore in the past, uh, where there are triads or gangs which extort poor shop owners. You know, uh, they have monthly protection fee or something like that. And when people don't want to pay, when they want to get justice, they go to the police or they report it to the authorities, then these triads will come and maybe throw acid on you or burn your shop or physically harm you so that you cannot get justice. So together with the corrupt judges and together with criminal intimidation, there is no justice for the poor as they're exploited. And that's exactly what was happening here. These people in Israel, God's people, people who belong to God, these rich and wealthy people were actually exploiting the poor and denying them justice as a result. Now I think that uh, as we reflect on this, uh, it will expand on it later as we go through the book Amos. Uh, a relevant question for ourselves is we come to church on Sunday and uh, we act very holy and everything, but in the rest of the week, do we treat people with compassion? Are we compassionate to the weak and the poor? Uh, in our lives, for the other six days of the week, do we, do we genuinely care and have concern for the vulnerable? 
Now, I'm not saying here that, you know, every time you go to the hawker centre, when everybody comes and wants to sell you tissue paper, you must always give $10 instead of $1. But generally, when you treat other people, do you exploit them in their weakness, or do you help them if they are vulnerable? So I know of Christians who have uh, domestic helpers, and when I see them treat their domestic helpers, I really feel that they are not acting as Christians. Okay, I hope that we are not like that. But there are really real cases where there are Christians who are rude and harsh to their domestic helpers. They don't give them enough food to eat. They don't give them enough sleep. They make them work 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Uh, I even know situations where they, they stop them from having their day off. And, and these are Christian domestic helpers and they can't go to church. Now how does God view that? Does God think that just because we come to church on Sunday, uh, that makes it okay for us to treat other people that way? No, God will not tolerate that because God is a compassionate God and if we are not compassionate and caring to other people, then we will be judged by it. In the same way, uh, one of uh, my dad's mates in the past, uh, the agent, uh, really exploited her and charged additional fees which we found out later he didn't have any right to charge at all. And for this man who was a Christian, he just earned a little bit more money, but it was six months more work for this man. Again, how does God view this? Does God view it favorably that we take advantage of those who are vulnerable and weak and exploit them for a little bit more money? when it means so much more hardship for them. So I guess when we conduct ourselves at home and at work, do we really care for people or do we exploit those who are vulnerable and weak? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying here, obviously, of cases where, you know, you see movies where people sell unnecessary insurance or, you know, rip off poor people. But in, in the same way, we need to examine our own consciousness to see whether we actually exploit and oppress those who are vulnerable or whether we are fair to them or not. Now in verse 7, in the second half, God goes on to condemn His people in Israel when He says, Father and Son, use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Now this first verse uh, seems shocking and I think it's meant to be shocking. The Father and Son are sleeping or using the same girl, having sex with the same girl. Now, it's not condemning that particular father and son, but I think it's a reflection of how low God's people had come in their, their sense of their attitude to sex. See, basically here what we see is God's people living in sexual chaos and uh, anarchy. Now, commentators can't really agree when they look at this passage what exactly it means. Does it mean that father and son is just another way of saying everybody? You know, it's just like saying <coughs> Tom, Dick and Harry. So father and son means everybody, right? Or is it talking about prostitution? Or is it talking about incest? But whatever it is, it's, it's, it's a really shocking picture of sexual immorality that's, that's just permeating through the whole of God's people. And as a result, it says there, because of this sexual chaos, sexual anarchy among God's people, Israel is profaning my holy name. Uh, to profane something is to blaspheme against God's name, or to dishonor, or to disrespect 
God's name. Now, Jesus, when he taught his disciples how to pray, what did he say? He told them, he said, this is then how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? We should revere God's name, we should respect God's name, and we should honour his name. And how do we do that? Well, we honour it because his name is, if you look back at Amos, his name is holy. They profane his holy name. So how do you honour and respect and revere God's holy name? Well, we too must act in a holy way. We must be holy in the things that we do. And that means that we must not make any compromise to the society that lives around us. So I, was, I read this book uh, quite a while ago. It's up here. Um, this guy called Albert Moeller, I, I think I, a, a few years ago I sent you an email link to his website. He writes all this social commentary from a Christian perspective. And he was writing about American society just a few years ago, but I think it's worse now. And he says that basically we live in an age of sexual tolerance, right, where there's acceptance of pornography, there's acceptance of internet sex. It's very normal. Uh, if you look at media in terms of TV, novels, to sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend on the first or second date, it's very normal to lose your virginity before marriage. I think, I, I can't remember, I read somewhere that only 3% of people in England getting married today are not virgins. Right? So that shows you how widespread... Uh, oh, sorry, are virgins. Sorry, wrong way, sorry. Are virgins, are virgins, okay. So that shows you how widespread this sexual tolerance is. Uh, there's, uh, people are measured as, uh, by their sexual attractiveness in terms of how many sexual partners they have. People have given in to lust and homosexuality. But I was reading this book and he was saying that even if sexual anarchy and sexual chaos and tolerance rule the world, it cannot rule us as Christians. Right? It, we will not bend or bow or surrender to the culture of sexual tolerance. And therefore what this passage is warning us is that in Israel's time, in Israel's day, there was a great compromise and tolerance in her attitude towards sexuality. And therefore, they were not hallowing God's name, but they were profaning God's name. And we must not make the same mistake as Israel, because God hates it and will judge us because of it. Now, in verse 8, it goes on to say that they lie down beside every altar on garments taken and pledged. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Now, when it says there in verse 8 that they lie down, they are not lying down to sleep, but lying down to have sex. Okay, so this section is linked to the previous section. And what was happening was, I suppose this attitude of sexuality had even permeated their worship practices. The way they worship God involved having sex. And the reason was because in the region where they lived, in the Canaanite region, uh, they used to practice fertility rites. So, uh, in those days, people wanted lots of children, more crops, more animals, more rain. And in order to achieve that, they felt that, well, if we, can, if we have sex before God, then the gods would bless us because they would feel very fertile themselves and therefore they would bless us with more animals, more crops, more rain, everything. The problem was God's people had taken 
the Canaanite way of worshipping God and started using it to worship Yahweh. What they were doing was called syncretism. Okay, this is a new word. It's a useful word to understand. It's called syncretism. Okay, syncretism is where you use other practices outside of the Bible, outside of God's way of saying things, and you try to combine it into the worship of God. So if you go to places like, say, uh, Central America, okay, if you read and pray for missionaries in Central America, you can see that there's a problem in Central America where the syncretistic practice, where voodoo and Christian practice are mixed together in the church. That's syncretism. Okay? And syncretism is unacceptable towards God. Right? God tells us how we need to worship God, and we must follow them regardless of what happens outside. No syncretistic practice within the church. God warned them in Deuteronomy chapter 12, which is up here. It says, These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess, as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship God, the Lord your God in their way. See, you cannot worship God in a different way in which He wants you to worship. But what was happening in Israel was, it says there, look closely in verse 8, that they lie down beside every altar. So they had made many, many altars all over Israel. And they were practicing worship in a sexual way on garments taken in pledge. And we read earlier that these were garments which they had taken from the poor people. In the house of their God, small g, they drink wine taken as fines. Okay, this fine is not like, uh, you know, you get traffic fine. It's, it's more like copy money, right? So they, you know, like the along, you lend money to them and, you know, you owe back and, and you don't pay back in time, I fine you, that sort of money. So here they were practicing syncretistic worship practices with oppression of the poor. Now, I think that this is a really important thing for us to learn that syncretism is something that God hates. We cannot worship God in our own way that we feel is right. We worship God in the way that He tells us is right. The problem is we so unknowingly adopt the practices and attitudes of societies and the values of societies that we then import them into the church and we use it to glorify God and we think God is happy with us. So I was reading some literature recently talking about the prosperity gospel and saying how actually when you look at the history of the prosperity gospel we always see it as starting it particularly in America and what commentators say is that basically the prosperity gospel adopted the values of the secular world in worshipping materialism and prosperity and then brought it into the church and tried to make it the way that we worship God that God if, we, if God is uh, making us rich, blessing us with money, many things, then God is loving us. But that's not what the Bible says. In fact, if you read this book, which I would recommend everybody get one day, you know, tomorrow if you can, called Operation World, you can pray through every country in the world 
and it will tell you all the, the, the things which are happening around the world. And these are uh, one of the analysis of the problem of the world, the church worldwide. And it says here, issues of culture and compromise of the world. Where contextualization ends and syncretism begins is hard to discern. It says there, Prosperity gospel, which can range from a healthy recognition that God wishes to bless His people to a thinly veiled avarice that uses the Lord as a mere vehicle for personal enrichment. This is no longer confined to a few slick American televangelists. It is the central issue for the church to address on every continent. No one can serve God and mammon. May every church, every leader and every believer understand this. See, so the problem is not just in America, the problem is worldwide because we think that somehow if, if we worship God and, and God wants to make us rich, then that is the way that we can worship God. But that's, that's syncretism with the world's values. Uh, recently, I received another email from a friend who, uh, I guess, sends me things re- very regularly. And he, he was quoting one of these uh, very strong evangelical leaders in America saying that for many Christians in America, they feel that the tipping point for the homosexual movement has gone past already in America, where basically the gay movement, lesbian movement, all these things are accepted in society. And he said that for many evangelical Christians in America, there is uh, a basic uh, giving in to these values where the church has started to accept it and embrace it and say, well, what's the point of fighting because society has moved beyond that as well. So even now within the church in America, many churches in America, even, uh, I think I sent out the article about the Presbyterian Church, USA, they have endorsed homosexuality in the church. But again, that's syncretism, that's bringing the values of the outside world and using it within the church because the world has accepted it. Now, I think that uh, there's no limit to how syncretism keeps corrupting the church if we don't pay attention. Uh, just yesterday, I was meeting out with someone and he told me this unbelievable story. He said that uh, he happened to be sitting in a cafe- cafeteria and these people from a prosperity gospel church sat next to him and uh, he was on his phone and he couldn't help but overhear what they were talking about. And apparently this prosperity gospel, which will remain un- <coughs> unnamed, uh, the leader, one of the leaders in the, that cell group was telling this youth group that one of the gifts of God, uh, you know, we often think of the gifts of, the, of God to the Holy Spirit was, you know, maybe hospitality, uh, evangelism. But he said... One of the gifts of God is being good-looking, right? And uh, because one of the gifts of, of, of God is being good-looking, you should use your looks to serve the church. So, you know, he, basically what this person says, oh, you look quite good-looking and you look, look quite good-looking, you should use your looks to, to bring people to church. Uh, so my friend apparently nearly dropped his telephone uh, and uh, couldn't continue his conversation anymore. But it just sort of shows you where where the world has so invaded the church that it becomes unrecognizable to what the Holy God wants. And we have to be careful of that. Because as we see here, God goes on to, to condemn Israel for all its syncretistic practices of bringing in all these values of materialism, uh, exploitation and sex into the worship of Him. So in verse 9, He goes on to say, 
Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them. Uh, though they were as tall as the cedars and as strong as the oats, I destroyed their fruit below, above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and the Nazarites from among your youth. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and command the prophets not to prophesy. So here, God goes on to speak to Israel and says, look at all the things I've done for you. I've done all these things for you, but yet you have not listened to me. So he uh, recounts three main things here. Uh, The main thing, first of all, uh, first slide, was how God had brought his people from Egypt out of slavery, out of bondage to Pharaoh, into Canaan, the promised land. Okay, next slide. Now, we must remember that before God's people, remember they were all slaves, okay? They were not, uh, you know, they were not uh, some powerful Roman army. They were just slaves. And when they went to the promised land, who did they see there? Well, they were very powerful people there, the Amorites. They gave Moses this account. These were the spies that went to the land. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Malachites live in the Negev, the Hittites and Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. But the man who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people, they're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. And all the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of the Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. But it says here that God destroyed the Amorites before them. He, he, he took away all these people even though they were as tall as cedars, it says in verse 9, and as strong as the oak. In fact, God so powerfully moved in front of God's people when they entered the promised land. It says, I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. That means that literally everything, right? You know, it's like when you destroy the tree, it's like you, you take away the top and you take away the bottom, there's nothing left. Well, God said that's what He had done for Israel. And He said that uh, God had also, next slide, says there, uh, next slide, thanks, the picture of it, that God had brought them uh, into uh, the promised land after he had fed them for 40 years in the wilderness. Right? I brought you up out of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land. So in the end, all the tribes had a place in the promised land. Okay, next slide. Even though for 40 years, <coughs> God had fed them and provided for them in the wilderness. But the last thing was his word. But instead of listening to his word, they commanded the Nazarites to drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now, here they were given <coughs> sorry, so many uh, privileges, but yet they did not turn back to God. In fact, it says there that they actually commanded the prophets not to prophesy so that they would not hear God's word 
anymore. And as a result, look at what it says there in verse 13 to 16. Because then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength. And the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away. And the horseman will not save. See, I want you to think for a moment what it's like if you are... So, you know, sometimes uh, you're driving on the road and there's this big container truck and it looks like, you know, it's not very well packed together. It's very... Uh, it looks like it's going to fall over any second so you stay far away from it. Imagine if, if a big container fell on you. You know those big shipping containers? <coughs> what would happen to you? You'd be squashed flat. Like, you know, one of those cartoons or something, except, but you literally die, right? Well, a picture of what God is going to bring on, on, on Israel because she failed to listen, even though she had all these privileges. Now, the lesson for us is, we too lose what God has given us because we have been blessed just as Israel was blessed. God delivered Israel out of bondage from Pharaoh and Egypt. God has delivered us out of bondage from Satan, from our sin. God has brought them salvation and God has brought us salvation in Jesus Christ. God brought them to the temporary promised land but God has promised to bring us to the eternal heaven. See, look at Ephesians chapter 1 to see the blessings that we have in Christ. Okay, next one. Next slide. In Ephesians 1, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms of every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with an understanding. See, we have even more than God's people in Israel did. We have Jesus. And as a result, we must continue to hold on to Jesus Christ. See, we must not ever take for granted our salvation. No one was ever saved because they were born into a Christian family. No one was ever saved because they went to a Christian school. No one is ever saved because they attended church. No one is ever saved because they were definitely ever saved because they become a Presbyterian. Right? We are only saved because we are in Christ and we remain in Christ. I was reading this book called The Reformed Pastor. Shocked if uh, you went to hell one day and you saw pastors there? No, right? And what he says here in this book really touched my heart. He said, Take heed to yourself, lest you be void of that saving grace of God which you offer to others, and be strangers to the effective working of that gospel which you preach. Lest to the world the necessity of your Saviour, but yet your heart should neglect Him, and you miss an interest in Him and His saving benefits. So content yourself not to be in vigorous and lively exercise. It says there that we should continue our own hearts and to subdue corruption and to walk with God. And that in everything we do, we must make sure... That's the message for us today. There should be no uh, feeling that God owes me salvation. God owes me forgiveness. So in my Christian life, 
and succumb to the compromises and the syncretisms of this world and, and I'll still be alright to God. If I want to profane God's holy name, if I want to dishonor name, by repeatedly and rebelliously and continually indulge in my soul. So let's listen to God's warning. Let's not shut off God's word. Let us not compromise with this world. Let us not be syncretistic in our worship practices. Let us not be abusive and exploitive of other people. Let us be compassionate. Let us truly reflect Jesus Christ and be in Jesus Christ in everything that we do. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that you are indeed a holy God who has done so much for us. You have predestined us in Christ. You have saved us in Christ. You have redeemed us in Christ. You have given us your merciful grace. Help us not to take it for granted like the Israelites did. Help us not to uh, think that we are owed forgiveness, salvation, eternal life. But help us to see that we must continue in the saving grace of your Son, Jesus. Help us not to compromise with our ethics and our morality and take on the values of this world. Help us not to be syncretistic and adopt uh, other worship practices which are, which are truly uh, sinful and are hated by you. Let us be compassionate to our brothers and sisters and, and our neighbour and not exploit them for the sake of money. And we pray that truly we'll continue to be right and uh, righteous before you, that we will be in right relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.